0: Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 413. My name is Minter Dial, and I'm your host for this podcast. First, I'd like to give out a shout out and thanks for putting up a five-star review of the show to Sarah Fries on iTunes. Please consider to do the same, drop in your rating and review, and don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. This week's interview is with the lovely Mark Schaefer. Mark is a globally recognized keynote speaker, educator, business consultant, and author. His blog, Grow, is perennially considered as one of the top marketing blogs in the world. His latest book, which happens to be his ninth, is a keeper, Cumulative Advantage, How to Build Momentum for Your Ideas, Business, and Life, Against All Odds, which explores the art and science momentum with great storytelling and verve. In this chat with Mark, we discuss key elements of his book, how individuals and companies can accumulate the right mix for their advantage, and how the book gels with Mark's deeper purpose. You'll find all the show notes on minterda.com. Now for the show. Mark Schaefer! Great to have you back. It's been uh, way too long. I mean, you are such a maestro, monster of content creation
1: ah <laughs> uh, i've never heard that that's a good one a monster of content creation i i may i may try to use that somewhere thank well, you it's such a delight this has been on my calendar and i've been watching this date i said i can't wait this is going to be amazing talking to you
0: well so not only a monster because you could just you know roll out a lot of shit but you you roll out things that provoke and you have that nasty habit of actually making me need to read your stuff.
1: <laughs> oh, that's the highest compliment it really is. Well, you know, I take writing books extremely seriously. Uh, I've think I've I've earned an audience who knows that I will not let them down. That this is a no-fluff book. There's ideas and inspiration on every page and so Minter, when I wrote this book, I only had one goal. It had to be better than my last book. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it was hard. This was this was a really, really, really hard book to write. My probably my most difficult ang- angst, angst ridden book. Where did that angst come from? Well, a couple of places. Number one, I started writing this book in the summer of 2019. And then the world turned upside down. We had uh, political just division and and toxicity. We had social justice protests in the streets. And then we had a pandemic. And I had written a few chapters by then and I sent them to a friend. (laughs) I think it was maybe April of 2020 and I said, is this still a book? <laughs> and he wrote me a message back, capital Y E S with three exclamation points. He said, Not only is this a book, is this a book, this is going to be your legacy. This is your best book. So that sort of gave me the power and the energy to keep going. And then, but I think as I got into it, as you know from the book, this is sure. It's, it's a business book. It's probably the closest I've come to a self-help kind of book. It applies to people. It applies to businesses. It applies to every kind of organization. However, it also applies to our society. And as I was writing the book, I could not ignore this. I just couldn't ignore the fact that there are undertones in this book that that are relevant to some of the chaos going on in our world. And so I decided in the last chapter of the book that I would address this in a personal way. And it was really hard. It took me three months to write that one chapter. Uh, I I had all these different people looking at it from all these different perspectives. um, And it was a big risk because I, it's not the sort of narrative that you would typically hear from a middle aged white guy. And I had to sort of shed this role of what I'm supposed to say, what I'm supposed to think in this world, and say, look, if I don't say these things, I'd be, uh, you know, I would be a coward. These things have to be said. So I'm going to say them. And the reception has been really good. So it was hard. It was just a really, really, Hard book to write, but it's people love it, and so in that way, it's been worth the effort, and it's been very
0: rewarding. It's dotted with great stories, and of course, that last chapter. I'm sure that amongst the people you asked to check it out was Elijah. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> and and his grandmother. Sure, the 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 Titan, or oh, I can't remember the name you used for her, but um, yeah. There, there are two things that, that was swirled around in my head as, as I read that chapter. Firstly, I can relate to moving from just a pure business book to life and the self-help mm-hmm. thing. And I don't know mm-hmm. if you've been finding your book actually ranking in Amazon self-help categories.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it ranked in, um, oh, this surprised me. It, it, it ranked in like job hunting. Or something like that. I thought, well, okay. I mean, I'll I'll take whatever they give me. Um, yeah, but that was sort of unusual. Yeah, and yeah, I don't know if you know uh, Jeff Bullis or not. Sure, he's, I'm yeah, not of right. Jeff. I had a conversation with Jeff the other night, and he read the book, and he said, he said, you know, yeah, this is a good book for business. It's a good book for marketing. He said, but this is a book. It teaches you how to be a better human being. I thought that was sort of a, an interesting new way to, to describe my book that I appreciated.
0: Mm. So philosophically, uh, I wanted to start with talking about capitalism.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It's sort of under fire. There's this notion of the rich get richer and the poor. Yeah. There's this divide going on. Yeah. And what is your foundational belief with <laughs> regard to capitalism? Because how does that instruct or inform the way you write?
1: Well, let's put it this way: it's it's my my philosophy is definitely in transition. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I grew up as a as a capitalist pig dog. Uh, you know, I worked for a Fortune one hundred company. My role in life was to uh, make the quarterly numbers, to fight for the quarterly numbers. Uh, Higher profits, higher profits every quarter without excuse, without end. And as I, there was a, a signature moment for me that started me thinking in a different way. It was probably about eight years ago at South by Southwest. And I would challenge myself to go to sessions that were just push, would push me in a different way, push me in a different way. And I think this was eight, maybe nine years ago. And one of the sessions was, it was something about, we shouldn't be in business to make money. And I thought, oh boy, this, you know, what kind of an idiot is giving a talk like this? can this <laughs> go well. I thought, oh, this is going to be rich. So I listened to him. And for the first time, it really challenged me and some of my notions. And of course, we've had businesses like Patagonia, purpose-driven, values-driven businesses around for a long time. But he was really suggesting a new sort of corporation that was built around values and purpose. And I think what's happening right now is that... um, when we have such a concentration of money and power, and so many people are being left behind, the, that, the, that the, real, the real value, I think, of traditional capitalism has to be questioned. And I'll just use this as an example, is that if you if you look at these reports that they do about happiness, wellness, in different countries in the world, generally speaking, they have a GDP that's sort of in the middle of the pack and that the richer companies, more capitalist countries uh, sort of have lower happiness scores and and lower uh, even life expectancy and so forth. And as you knew, know from the book, I've spent a good portion of my last 13 years working in inner city communities in economically deprived communities with economically challenged families. And it's, it's like they're the whole community, every life in this community is on the edge. It's so fragile. They're one broken car away from crisis. They're one leaky roof away from disaster and and there's just so many people, you know, being, being, being left behind. So I think it is time to, to rethink. And as I said, my, my philosophy is really in, in, in transition as I'm trying to figure this out myself.
0: Hmm. I had it for later, but um, it does feel like we need to talk about what is success. You were talking about with your book, that your measurement is to do better than the one before Mm -hmm. when we, are in ro- running a company we can aim for a number 10 million 100 million number yeah. one and and then the question is well is that is that what it's all about yeah which tends to be what the markets are looking for you know the capital markets
1: well back in my corporate pig dog days <laughs> i was in a, a training class and it was one of these, I was get working on a master's degree, actually, in Applied Behavioral Sciences. And so this teacher was going around the class, and we were supposed to be talking about our feelings and our concerns. And he, he, he looked me in the eye, and he said, well, Mark, what's, what's the feeling that you experience most of the time? And it was easy, I said, anxiety. <laughs> I said, what else could it be? I've got this high pressure job and a high pressure company. And instead of doing what I'm supposed to be doing, I'm sitting in this class. And I was sort of a smart ass. And I turned to this instructor and I said, well, what's the feeling you feel most of the time? He said, joy. And I looked in his eyes and I knew it was true. And from that moment on, I had a new goal for my life. In fact, I've got the word joy right over my shoulder here on my desk. Because I thought, what am I living for? Why? I mean, wouldn't it be wonderful to experience joy as the predominant feeling in your life? Isn't that what we should all be aiming for? And I was, you know, I was young and climbing up the corporate ladder. But from that moment on, I started making decisions that led to joy instead of leading to advancement or money or, or whatever. And I've had a great career. Don't get me wrong. And I'm financially I'm fine, but I've also over the years, I've left a lot of money on the table and a lot of opportunities. I actually talk about it in the new book, don't I? Yeah. Um, so no, that's, no that's
0: first.
1: yeah, that's, that's, yeah. So that's really, I guess I would have been about uh, 30, maybe something like 30 years old when, when I started making that, that change in my life. And um, so I feel good about things right now.
0: So uh, I started mine around 37 and um, I wanted to just do a shout out to a friend of mine called Rod Banner, because he started the group with kind of a community feel and a mission the name of his group which is quite large at least in britain is called joy tech (laughs) how can we exploit technology to bring more joy to the world not Mm -hmm. just the happy ha 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 but the joy fulfillment deep satisfaction elements and the connecting of dots that i have is that we're old geezers on top of that all three of us are white men Mm -hmm. Been around the block, and then mm-hmm. the challenge is for the corporate ladderists and the people starting out mm-hmm. to move from the oh well, I've got to pay the mortgage, I've got to do certain things. My father wants me to be a doctor, or yeah. pressure, pressure from society, right? And, and to make that switch. So you made it at thirty, which is reasonably young in, in the grand mm-hmm. scheme of things. I made it maybe at thirty-seven. But it certainly wasn't an overnight switch. It was like, oh, this is the beginning of my journey. <laughs> it's the way I write it now. Worse. How do we how do we encourage more of that type of switch and search for joy when we have a stock market and VCs and private equity sharks that are still yeah. looking for the number?
1: Well, first, I guess something that's different about me is that. I don't necessarily want to evangelize my choices. Uh, I honor whatever choices people make. I I don't know what their situation is. It's like you say, I mean, people have a mortgage to pay. They have hungry children to feed. Uh, maybe they made a bad financial decision and they, they need to recover from that. Maybe they've got a parent who needs expensive procedures. And so, they're they're working very very hard. I don't dismiss the fact that in some respects it it takes a certain amount of of luxury to be able to make a decision that says I'm going to live my life more toward joy. Certainly my ancestors couldn't make that decision and yours probably couldn't either. You know, my 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 heritage, my grandfather, he was you know, he was a plumber and he and he worked really really hard just scraping by. But so, so I don't, I don't begrudge anybody. I don't really judge anybody. I do think there's a certain toxicity about the hustle culture that really this idea of, of just hours being worked is, is, is somehow glorified. You know, this is absent. Oh, I'm trying to do something good for my family, or I need to repay these debts or, but and and I've talked to people. It's like, oh my gosh, they're ruining their lives because they they just have this emphasis on on the number of hours worked. It's almost like a competition or something, and that that does make me sad uh, because there doesn't and and there's just so many people sort of fa- failing in that realm, um, and they're they're losing their families, they're losing relationships, um, so. Uh, but you asked, you know, how do we, how do we do it at the top of my blog? It has three words. It says marketing strategy, humanity. And most of my blog posts are about the amazing, wonderful, uh, ever fascinating world of marketing and business. But I also love just looking at how this impacts humanity and, Basically, for the last decade or so, I've tried to do everything I can to insert more humanity into that equation and encourage people and nurture people and coach people who are trying to work their way through this. My last book before cumulative advantage was Marketing Rebellion, the most human company wins, which is you know, a wake up call. I hope uh, and it has started a bit of a movement to encourage people to think about you know, let's get away from our dashboards. Let's get away from this addiction to our MarTech stack and really get back in touch with what marketing is supposed to be. It's about building an emotional connection to what you do. And that's why marketing is lost because we're, we're trying to cut costs and move everything to algorithms. And that's not what
0: people want today. When you talk about Tim Ferriss's story, Clearly, he had that kind of a, a wake up moment in his life, breaking up with his girlfriend, doing the trip around the world that allowed him to, to do it. And it mm-hmm. feels certainly for me, because that's the way my wake up call was I needed a, a life changing moment. Mm-hmm. Say, uh oh, well, all that's just a bunch of baloney. You know, we got to do something that matters, something that's more meaningful. And even though many people need to f- put food on the plate, kind of feeling there is this daunting risk that the hard work ends out with burnout yeah and so there there still needs to be i feel up and down the scale some kind of attachment to something that provides you with an extra energy because Mm. to keep on learning and Mm. figure out the new marketing stack like you're saying and the new tech thing and this and that and shifting all that energy you need to keep up with the Joneses something needs to keep driving you and if we don't enable that or at least give permission to people to feel that
1: well certainly it's been that way for me and uh what a disorienting disorienting experience i had when the pandemic hit and i i got the disease early on and One of the aspects of my illness was that I had hypoxia. So I wasn't getting enough oxygen to my brain. I couldn't think. I couldn't read. I couldn't write. I couldn't concentrate on anything for about three weeks. And it was sort of early on. And then when I kind of get out of this haze, Minter, well, my business had crashed, right? So I was a speaker without an audience and a teacher without classes and a consultant without customers and so my like the furnace was was cold <laughs> this what's going to be driving me and what is that heart what is that passion and what i realized was that i'm a teacher i'm a teacher in everything i do whether i speak or write or consult and but the world just needed me to teach something else right now and once i got that that reorientation to think about, okay, this is really who I am. And this is how I apply myself in this moment. That was very helpful.
0: (laughs) It's beautiful. What strikes me is this notion of purpose. Yeah. And it took me a while to come up with mine and you write in, in one of your chapters, this notion of sorry the constancy of purpose. Yeah. How do you like to define purpose? Just where does it go in your mind?
1: Wow. That's a, that's a big question for me. You know, I, I just think for me, um, I'm at this amazing place. (laughs) Um, I, I really, I I went through a lot of reflection in the last few years because I find myself looking into the last third of my life. And when you're in your 30s or 40s, you can make choices to do something and you've got a lot of room for error. You can always pivot and try something else. And now I'm looking into the last third of my life and I want to get excited about something. I want to wind something up. I don't want to wind something down. So I went on a hike with a friend and he said, well, look where you are right now. How do you know that this isn't the beginning, that this is just the beginning of your journey? See, I look at it as, oh my gosh, I've come so far. And what he's, he's seeing it a different way. He said, you still have so far to go. Why in the world would you stop? And this uh, was was a great perspective to hear because I'm in this amazing position where every week someone tells me, writes me, sends me a note and says, you changed my life. You helped my business. And look, 20 years ago, I would have thought my life to be amazing if if, if I would have heard that one time in my whole life. I You know, I changed my life. Uh, I'll never forget a few years ago, I was at a conference in Scotland and this young woman came up to me and, and she had tears in her eyes. And she said, I am who I am because of you. Because you've taken the time to listen to me and help me and answer my questions. And I, I read all your books. And so why would I stop that? I mean, that's a pretty great purpose. You know, that's really the most amazing purpose you could ever dream of. And so where I'm sort of dedicated right now is How, if I can have that sort of positive impact on people, how can I scale that to be even more? My inspiration is Brene Brown. Mm -hmm. Brene, she is like, she doesn't on her terms. She's brilliant. She's kind. She's insightful. She's inspiring. But there's, but it's not, she doesn't really compromise. Her, her, personality her being just comes through in such a powerful way it's that it's her courage and so uh that's sort of what i have in my mind i want to be the boy Bernay.
0: <laughs> that is lovely i i so feel when you because when you when you talk about this cumulative advantage and and sort of tim ferris's component of it mm-hmm. there's a uh, there's an element of you got to know what track you're going to go on. But what I loved about your journey, Mark, and what you expressed at the end, which is what resonated with me was I didn't want to be on Oprah per se, or at least that's not what you sought. You're open to it. Hey, listen, let's be pragmatic. Yeah. Right. But that's what you weren't, you weren't necessarily open to it. So you're into the, I'm going to change, do different things, do different ways to achieve this idea of education rather than just be the, in one kind of track, one channel, get to the biggest of the, whatever that category is. Mm -hmm. You've chosen, it seems with some element of solemnity, your approach and inshallah, as we say, to- Yeah, very,
1: very, very much so. I I was on a interview maybe a couple of years ago with one of uh, the thought leaders in our field who I'm sure, you know, and we got into a discussion about uh, Gary Vaynerchuk Mm -hmm. and all that he, you know, he has millions and millions of followers. And he said, well, what, I mean, don't you want that life? Don't you want that? I said, not in the least, not in the least. He said, how could you not, how could you, how could you not, he said, "Don't you have like a certain amount of jealousy?" I said, "Really?" I said, "I'm not kidding you. I, I really don't. I'm just really centered in where I am. I'm just really happy where I am right now. I don't want to be anybody else. I don't need a million followers. I don't want a million followers. I'm doing good work and people appreciate it. I'm helping people, and it's just an amazing place to be. And." Uh, one of the things I'm sure you've seen this or experienced something like this too. You and I grew up in this corporate world, and we were what? We were focused on on data and research and and the numbers. And in the social media world, it's it's often not logic-led or data-led, it's guru-led. And the gurus in our field just have a disproportionate amount of power. You see these quotes, I call them the rainbow bombs, you know, the little quotes that you see on Facebook or LinkedIn, and people share them. And I wonder, do they even think about what they're sharing here? This doesn't even make sense. And we're sort of in this guru culture where people look up to the gurus, they wanna be the gurus, they emulate the gurus. And and it's like, it's almost like an alternative reality compared to the business world I grew up in where you, you at least the leaders in my company, they wanted to be challenged. They wanted, they wanted the debate. They wanted to see the research. They wanted to see the numbers. No one, there was no guru culture in a Fortune 100 company. It was it was a business culture, it was a professional culture. It was based on on, on data and logic. And and that, that seems to be totally missing in the marketing world sometimes.
0: Well, uh, um, my mind goes to the, the world of kings with the title CEO and how they seem to be always the guru with the best opinion in the room. So I I've I certainly um wanted to talk with you, Mark, about this notion of corporate world because a lot of people who are listening are living in corporate world. And when I, I read your book, I felt like I was reading it the majority of the time. Uh, the, the majority of the, the account spoke to Minter, the entrepreneur mm-hmm. and much less to me, the executive at L'Oreal, mm-hmm. this idea of the sonic boom, the, the great idea that you can sculpt and, and, and then knowing how to, get the seam and, and push through. It felt like, you know, you were master of your destiny at that point. And and it's up to you to take command of that and then go for it. If I'm working in a large organization, middle manager, or even CEO for that matter of, of a hundred thousand employees, it feels like the cumulative advantage is more speaking to the brand and the corporation when you're versus the person as an entrepreneur, Talk me through what I just said.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think, so first of all, on a very high level, what what is cumulative advantage? Cumulative advantage comes from sociological research that began in the 1960s that postulated if you have some small advantage over others in your field, that that advantage could grow and grow really unabated without some sort of countervailing processes. This research has been applied to uh, sports, entertainment, education, health, just about anything you can think of, but it hasn't really been connected to individual lives and businesses in a non-academic way. So that's the basic principle. So now you think about, okay, if I have some initial advantage with my, certainly my idea my business? What about my department within my company? How does that work? What about my reputation in my company? And I used a couple of examples in my book where um, in from both a personal level and a corporate level, how this was sort of applied. I gave the example of how I ended up being the, 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 global director of e-business for this fortune 100 company, because when the internet was starting, I went to my boss and I said, I want an AOL description, descript- dis- nine bucks a month. I want to put it on my expense account because I think there are some business applications to the internet. And he wasn't wild about the idea, but he said, go ahead. And so I had been toying with these and I came up with an idea and it worked. And a few years later when the company woke up and decided oh we need an e business department who shall we get to lead this the natural choice was me because i had i pursued my curiosity that was my initial advantage i pursued the curiosity and i hit a seam the internet was opening right so then i created this department now i was pushing water uphill Or maybe I was pushing bites of information uphill because I was in this big, more or less B2B company. And most of the business leaders didn't even know how to turn on a computer. And I was supposed to perpetuate an e-commerce solution when nobody even heard of it. It was a pioneering effort, really, in, in all of business. But I was cool my department was cool. And we were able to have these little success stories that we were able to, to publicize and the awareness grew and grew and grew. And soon people, they wanted to be on board because they heard about this internet thing and they wanted to be part of this. And I was able to attract the best talent in the company to keep this momentum going. So, I mean, yes, this can work on a personal level. It can work certainly on an entrepreneurial level. It can work for a career. It can work for a department within a company. Really, any place where you you need to to build momentum and outpace your your competitors, we can see examples of cumulative advantage working in the world.
0: I love it. When I was reading it, I, I had and I wanted to sort of shoot this out as like a a, a random, fairly creative question. I hope. I'd love for you to comment the relationship, if relationship between momentum, critical mass, or so momentum as in cumulative advantage, uh, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. and critical mass and yeah. inertia.
1: Yeah. That's a great question. One of, the, one of the aspects of my research for this book is certainly looking at the work of uh, Jim Collins with um, "Good to Great" and the flywheel, and I didn't want to recreate something that's already been done. And and there is a connection, I think. Um, the flywheel concept is what is what is the f- the function or the activity in your business that sort of can drive you to the next level, drive you to the next level. And for me, it's a book, writing a book. I find that every time I write a book, I'm sure it's the same for you. It it creates a new level of interest. It creates a new level of awareness. It creates a bigger audience. It creates more speaking engagements. It's the reason I'm talking to you today. Here I am spending amazing time with this amazing man and and the excuse that we have today is because i wrote this book so that's sort of the flywheel now this would not have ever happened if i hadn't built that momentum behind the books so there is a connection i think between inertia and critical mass uh, you know, maybe that's the next book I write is, you know, me with my arm around Jim Collins or something linking up these ideas. But I never would have had the opportunity to establish a book as the driver of my flywheel if I didn't have the momentum in the first place. Mm-hmm. If I just wrote a book and it sat there, I wouldn't be here with you today, but I've written nine books and every book does better than the last book. Because now the momentum is going. And then it drives the flywheel in other ways for the business. So there is an inter it, it, there is an interconnection there. I think that's a very keen observation. Do you feel the
0: same way? Do you sort of see the same thing? I, I do. I mean, this notion of getting to critical mass. I, I, I may be the sonic boom version of so many of our lives is when Oprah calls you or... <laughs> When you know you're on TV, because mm-hmm. that just sort of catapults. Mass media still has the word "mass" in it. Whereas mm-hmm. when you write a blog post and it's shared and viewed, it it's great, but it's it's certainly not a couple of million people uh, with an endorsement by some famous other person. Yeah, which um, is a one-stop shop. You talk about how having five great people in this moment of sharing in the influence story, you talk about the five different great people sharing is the right number. That's a critical mass number of reshares by influential people. So these no, this notion of nodes of influential people pushing you out. And then once you get to the point where people are accepted, there's an accepted wisdom that comes out of Mark Schaefer. And yes. They bought seven or eight before, Well, I'm going to, this Scottish lady, she's bought the ninth one, right? Yes. Right. And- and so there, that's the cumulative advantage. But when in big business,
2: mm-hmm.
0: also, I feel like it's so much harder because you have so many, well, Martin Lindstrom, you quote him saying that 84% of all businesses started from a random event. Yeah. At some level, once you've got the big business going, you're not starting yeah. it anymore, but you've got to start new ideas. And how do yeah. you bring in well, this new look- you can't, I mean, that is you can't. It's <laughs> so it's it's
1: really ridiculous and sad. Cause I remember, you know, in my corporate days, if you didn't have a new business idea that was worth a hundred million dollars, there you, go away, right? No hope. So uh big big companies really aren't um uh really aren't hotbeds of, of sparks of innovation like that I think where the sparks of innovation are with big companies would be process improvements cost control better hr practices better hiring practices something like that but it's it's hard to to bring true breakthrough inner innovation into the into the corporate setting and um you know that's that's the source
0: of a lot of problems right now. It's also the source of opportunities for entrepreneurs.
1: Yes, that's right. That's, that's exactly right. That's what we call, you know, the, I, I talk in the book about the, the opportunity is when there's a fracture in the status quo. That is a fracture in the status quo. If there's a need out there and these big companies don't pay attention to it, well, that's that's where we jump in and we
0: become rich. That becomes a scene. Yep. One of the, so the dots, I love to connect dots. And so I was thinking you wrote about the constancy through crisis with the need for yeah. constancy. Yeah. And yet everyone else is talking about pivoting, agility, mm-hmm. speed of change. So it was an interesting juxtaposition for me to think of constancy in the face of constant change.
1: Well, that's that's a great, um, a great way to think about it because – I also say in the book that, look, whenever we're in a crisis, it, it, we we need to look at the real world. We can't be stubborn. We can't be trying to sell horse and buggies when the automobile is is being introduced. So, uh, but we we can't panic. And the advice that I'm giving business today, and I'm giving, I'm talking about this a lot is that you can't forget what brought you here. You can't forget what is your DNA. And your goal in this era of the pandemic is to get through one year. Can you get through one year? Do whatever it takes. At the beginning of the pandemic, like a lot of people, I thought, oh boy, I'm gonna have a lot of time on my hands. I'm gonna be able to do this. I'm gonna be able to do this. And what we soon found out is that we didn't read a book a week. We didn't get the beach body that we wanted. We didn't learn a new language. The most heroic thing any of us can do right now is is land on the other side intact with our families intact, with our relationships intact, with our business intact. And to me, that just seems like something we can focus on is can we get through this year? And- and then that's what I mean by constancy of purpose. It, it doesn't mean not pivoting. It means not panicking. It means just keep focused on your purpose. Keep focused on why people love you and don't destroy that. Uh, if you panic.
0: No, I totally get it. I mean, I just, I like the way things go up in my mind. I'm like, oh, that's the dots connecting. One of the other, just to finish on, was you talk about connecting your present to your past. And I think that's related for me. Because if you can just go back to the shit problem that the founder of your organization went back and solved maybe a hundred years ago,
2: yeah.
0: You're not gonna reinvent the bicycle. Mm-hmm. However, that 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 need to fix the the urgent, like, oh my God, I've got to fix this problem kind <laughs> of feeling. Yeah, you need to tap into that history within your pocket. For
1: sure, for sure, for sure.
0: So, Mark, thank you for coming on. Um, I had about a million more questions. Aww. That's just going to have to be channeled to people getting your book, Cumulative Advantage. Um, can you tell us, for those who don't know you, how to reach you, uh, or at least follow what you read, because I'm sure you don't need whole bunch of other people but once they've read your book sure they can reach out and tell you how great it was
1: well i'd love that i would love to hear that that's what that's that's the fire that keeps me going for sure Mm -hmm. um you can find me at businessesgrow.com nobody can remember how to spell schaefer but most people can remember businesses grow and you can find my blog my podcast um my books which really at this point I've written a book for just about every sort of stage of marketing you're in. (laughs) And uh, yeah, and all my social media connections are there. So yeah, I'd love for your listeners to connect with me and say hi.
0: Well, for me, it's been a pleasure. I love your laugh, Mark. I love the uh, authenticity of your stories. I love your purpose. uh, And I certainly have enjoyed reading Uh, This book, amongst others, that you've written. Well done, Mark. and Thanks again.
1: Thank you, Minter. It's been a pleasure and an honor as always.
0: Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find all the show notes and other blog posts on MinterDial.com. And if you enjoyed the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts to give a rating and review. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.
2: Stranger tucked around me, precipitating the danger to feel. a convinced man in the arms of a woman i'm a convinced man challenge my fate i'm a convinced man competitions in me a convinced man in the arms of a woman despite revenges and struggle with deceit